0: welcome to episode 17 of turning the goldfields green in this episode we speak with a family of activists and we take a closer look at what is going on with the adani cold mine a hotly contested mine that is still in construction in queensland long-term residents of castlemaine ben and jacinta have spent a lifetime living with the earth in mind from building a sustainable house to participating in protests and activism Ben travelled on the Adani Convoy last year, as led by renowned Greens leader and activist Bob Brown. It is the one-year anniversary of the convoy, and the Bob Brown Foundation has just released a film about the event. Ben is an institution in the local art scene with a career as a painter that spans decades. As a bonus, I've uploaded an extra interview with Ben to saltgrass.podbean.com. I used to run a show called Artswank with my co-host, Robin Walton, and we did an hour long interview with Ben a couple of years ago, all about how art and activism combine in his life. So jump online at saltgrass.podbean.com if you want to listen to that. Jacinta has studied a master's in social ecology, trained in facilitation and studied the transition towns movement, which we covered in episode three. If you want to go back and have a listen. And Rilke, their daughter, is currently up in Queensland, putting herself on the line to try and stop the Adani coal mine from going ahead. Last I heard of Rilke, she was making a dash for the border before they closed because of the coronavirus, and I have heard that she has made it to Queensland, and she's up in Brisbane at the moment enjoying a lot warmer weather than we are down here in Victoria. And before we get into it, I should say hello and how are you to everyone in Upway. This program is now airing on 3MDR every week as well. For the sake of the 3MDR listeners and podcast listeners, who could be anywhere, I'm going to be even more careful to contextualise and explain things that locals to Castlemaine may already know. On that note, a shout out to California, the US state with the most listens anywhere outside of Victoria. So hello over there. As usual, I would like to acknowledge that this program has been made on Jara country, the land of the Wurrung people. I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners in Upway, and also the Wangan and the Jangalingu people, who are the traditional owners in the Galilee Basin, where the Adani coal mine is to be located. They have been actively trying to fight the coal mine for years and have basically gone bankrupt in their attempts to fight it and have had their native title removed so that the mind can go ahead. Please see the link in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com to find out more about their struggle. I pay my respect to the elders of all of these people, past, present and emerging. May we please start listening and stop destroying their land and their culture. Salt. Salt.
1: Salt. 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 salt.
0: Grassroot.
2: Grassroot. Grassroot.
3: Grassroot.
0: Grassroot.
2: Grassroot. Salt of the Earth people.
0: Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. I'm sitting here today with Ben Laycock, Jacinta Walsh and Rilke... Laycock Walsh. Laycock Walsh. Mm. There you go. <laughs> so Ben and Jacinta are Rilke's parents and they are familiar figures around Castlemaine. They've been here for many years. How many years have you guys been here? Since 1992. There you go. And thanks for having us. <laughs> and you're actually on the wall at Masque with a much younger Rilke. We did a photographic project with uh, Deanna... Neville, uh, and she took photos of people from around Castlemaine who were carbon heroes, and you guys are up there as carbon heroes. Nice, isn't it? I want to see that. (laughs) Drop into the MASG office, you can see it. So we're going to talk about the Adani coal mine, or the proposed coal mine, which is still being contested. An Indian company wants to come in and dig up a lot of ground in the Galilee Basin, which is in Queensland, and it's going to be called the Carmichael Mine, They estimate that at peak capacity it could produce 600 million tonnes of coal a year and most of that or much of it is described as low quality and high ash. So it's not going to be good quality coal, whatever good quality coal may be. (laughs) I don't think any of us these days think of coal as good quality regardless of its actual quality. We we just want 100% renewables in general. So they're going to get a 60-year lease, I guess, and Adani expects to produce 2.3 billion tonnes, billion tonnes of coal in 60 years. You know, we're trying to get to carbon neutral and zero net emissions everywhere. We should be trying for 2030, if not 2050 at the very latest. And a 60-year lease still producing, digging coal out of the ground is basically a disaster. We're in 2020 and that would take us through to 2080, where we're still producing coal to get burnt for power and there are so many better options. So this is why people have been protesting the Adani mine and the Australian Conservation Foundation, the ACF, has mounted a legal challenge and the coal mine has been linked with pollution, excessive water use in an already dry nation and damage to the reef via and other environments via pollution and also of course the immeasurable effects of global warming and the climate emergency which will cause coral bleaching and acidifying oceans and warming oceans and all the rest so this is kind of why people are protesting it but I think it's still like we kind of know the name Adani and we we talk about it but I think a lot of people don't know the details of why it's so important to stop this mine so Rilke I know you're quite involved in the anti-Adani movement can you tell us a little bit about why this mine's different.
1: Well yeah firstly it's the only greenfields fields um, expor- exploration of coal in the world which means they're opening a whole new basin that is full of coal to mine whereas other new coal mines that might be being built are in areas where there's all coal mines around there they're already extracting things and they're quite small like like you said the billions of tons of coal that they will dig up and then sell and burn is it's equivalent to a third of Australia's emissions and then there's also um, the whole Galilee Basin is is vulnerable because if Adani goes ahead then you know Gina Ryan Hart's mine will go ahead Clive Palmer's mine will go ahead China first mine will go ahead so the whole Galilee Basin will be mined which is the biggest amount of coal that is in existence in the earth so th- that's like hugely important it's not just a one coal mine it is the biggest amount of coal we have in existence on earth it's really important to keep that in the ground on top of that how you know dangerous it is to be burning coal it's also like you know 800,000 people die of coal related illnesses every year like from every angle mining coal is just a terrible decision and direction to be going in yeah
0: so an argument that the government uses over and over again is jobs and Adani originally presented themselves as being able to produce 10,000 jobs but their own expert in court said that actually it will produce less than 1500 jobs and some people are saying somewhere between 800 to 1500 jobs i feel like the people who in australia the not everyday australians who are supporting this are feeling like oh it's going to be our prosperity We're going to get jobs, our towns are going to um, prosper. Can you tell us what the actual reality of it is as you understand it?
1: Well, yeah, that was just like a political tool to make people worried about their own livelihoods instead of worrying about their livelihoods in terms of like climate change. And yeah, the Australian Institute has really good data showing that if the Galilee Basin were, no, actually, if just the Adani mine, the Carmichael mine were to go ahead, then there would be job losses in the coal mining industry of around 6,000 workers so it's actually detrimental to pre-existing coal miners like obviously we want to phase out all coal mining but we want to do that in like a, f- a fair way for workers and yeah if the market just decides that your coal mine is shutting down because Adani is making much cheaper coal then those workers that you know they're all just going to be you know left behind and no one is benefiting miners in Claremont have admitted to Knowing they're not they're not benefiting at all from the so mine. You
0: actually have a story where you met one of the miners.
1: Well, yeah, my friend actually, she was um, she did an action to on a drill rig where they were um, doing work on the railway line for the um, Adani mine, and she locked herself to the drill rig and immobilised it and halted work for maybe seven hours, um, and then she had to go back to Claremont for court. And I met her the next day and went to court with her, but she stayed in Claremont the night before and was a bit, like, scared and then went to the pub and ended up hanging out with these miners. And this miner gave her $100 to pay her fine with and said, yeah, actually, you know, it doesn't make any difference to us. Obviously, that's just, like, some anecdotal <laughs> evidence. But, um, I mean, yeah, people in Bowen, I asked the Centrelink if, you could get, if they could help get me a job at Adani and they said huh you got to be related to someone or wait until someone dies to get a job there so and you know these towns they just you know the workers will fly in from townsville or will drive in from townsville flying fly in from Hunter valley to Mackay and then drive in like they're not they're not going through claremont they're not going through bowen there that there's no benefit to these towns whatsoever mm. and they're uh, maybe a tiny percentage they
2: don't even stop and buy a pie on the way
1: (laughs) (laughs) so i have heard that
0: adani uh building the mine and they call it this is the mine of the future like they've got like someone's been quoted to say that they're you know building futuristic mines where actually they're deliberately cutting jobs and they're using driverless trucks they've got Mm -hmm. 45 driverless trucks
1: yep they're already working with driverless trucks to even create the mine and that's the majority of the um, minimal numbers of workers are just going to be this small amount of time while they're actually constructing the mine and then all those jobs they're just very short-term jobs and then they'll disappear because then they will just be like pretty much completely using um automated trucks and yeah they've got them running right now you know um building a dam yeah and and like yeah it's also important you know the black-throated finch's habitat is is pretty much all destroyed like it's gone yeah
0: because there was a little movement last year for people to send pictures they'd drawn of or artwork around the black floated finch to Mm. various politicians to try and impact their sense of like what would be lost and so you're saying that that's actually happened the majority of that habitat's gone
1: yeah yeah
0: the other thing to note is that the government the state government is offering all sorts of incentives which just to the the scale of these incentives tells me how much money they're planning to make off the mine because if they're offering discounts like this it means they're getting x number more than that in potential revenue which is why the governments are in it i think so royalty deferrals Up to 900 million and a total tax exemption of 4.4 billion.
1: Yeah, it's equivalent to every single Australian giving them $1,600.
0: It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, so Ben, you went on the Adani Convoy last year, and this was a movement started by Bob Brown of Franklin River fame and obviously green party fame how was it what happened why did you decide to go on this convoy
2: well because it was bob brown yeah and he wanted to replicate his moment of glory 40 years ago in the franklin river so the idea was that bill Shorten was meant to be part of it and he was meant to declare they will never build this mine if i become prime minister Uh, like bob Hawke. he said it was actually said, you know, this could be your Bob Hawke moment. Yeah, right. Bill Shorten failed to rise to the occasion. He said, no thanks. Yeah. Yeah, we went up there um, just to sort of raise awareness uh, all around the country. But people, uh, the, the press, because the press is all run by Murdoch in Queensland, said we'd gone up there to harass the miners and confront the miners and that, that they were frightened of us.
0: Oh, those poor miners!
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, uh, all of these grey nomads. <laughs> yeah,
0: so <laughs> it was it
2: was hilarious. But we did get to meet the miners yeah. or confront them. Um, and well, they they, they came pretend... to confront
0: you rather than the other way around. Yeah, Is that that's what right.
2: Um, and they were pretending to be angry, but apparently the, the boss said you get the day off if you go to the protest.
1: Yeah, they were protesting. They had signs and things. So they were fake protesting. great. <laughs> they,
2: they had Go Adani signs. Yeah. Go Adani. Uh, well, they
1: had a sign saying, don't like coal, sit in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> they had some
2: idea that if they stopped mining the coal, then the whole world would stop. Yeah. But they also had this idea that there was so much demand for coal that you could have as many coal mines as you like. There'd be plenty of work for everybody. So somebody's told them that, but I don't well, it, know well, if it's true.
1: I was told, because there's a couple of, um, more than a couple, I'm sure, but I know personally a couple of ex-coal miners who are now, you know, activists and um, lock onto coal trains and the like, and one of them said that when he was in the coal industry they would get people coming into the mine and e- experts saying there's this is all obviously bullshit that the climate change is obviously not a thing there's actually too much oxygen in the air and we need to be you know creating co2 to 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 balance yeah
0: (laughs) that's amazing i know (laughs) that amount of misinformation Yeah. so ben how did how did the convoy work out how did you latch onto it and travel up with it what was it like what was the experience like
2: it was sort of you know exciting you all camped together in uh, somewhere like Mudonga, And then in the morning, the Teslas would lead the convoy, which was kind of weird because they were totally silent and gleaming new machines. And Bob Brown would be in the leading Tesla waving silently <laughs> as, as they pulled out. <laughs> it was a bit like the Royal cortege. Yeah.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and then but then we we wouldn't see each other till we got to the next spot, and we basically only would all be together when we, as we took off in the morning. And then people just go all, all over the place. Yeah, it was quite a um, moving experience to be part of it. But then we get to Claremont, and they were waiting for us. so were they were all fired up. I heard this. there was sort of increasing
0: aggression the further north you got and into. Sort of the country that is actually being
2: contested. Yeah, basically two places: Rockhampton and Claremont, which is right is near mine. And they had Pauline Hanson, Clive Palmer, Bob Catter, and a couple of other right wing nut jobs, all all in the pub together, and they were fueling the, the yeah. whole situation, egging everybody on. And so yeah, we we were dry. we were in our cars, but everybody was. Lining, there was a, a gauntlet of angry people yelling and screaming at us.
1: And then this horseman came in, this crazy dude on his horse and just galloped into the arena where everyone's sitting and he's like, I love coal, makes me money. And then he, oh, people tried to like stop him and...
0: He, I heard he rode through, uh, like people were picnicking there was with kids. There yeah,
1: was, it was like very dangerous. very dangerous. Um, yeah, and then, then he tried to jump over the gate because people locked him in the arena and yeah someone got hurt it was it was wild
0: so it's an interesting point I think because what you guys are doing is called direct action in terms of how protests run and you're going there to be visible and potentially disrupt things like you've been talked a couple of times about friends of yours locking on to equipment to stop the equipment from operating for a while but direct action is in its primary kind of concept nonviolent so can we talk about that in terms of like what response you're getting from people who are objecting to you guys and what actually your goals are and and your ethics around that
1: mm. yeah well we practice nonviolent direct action and direct action i mean it, it could be in in other countries it obviously does get violent. That's you know the fight that they ha- the having to make. Um, yeah, so it you know depends what you you want to do. And direct action can be like um, you know food, not bombs, and other kind of things. Like, but we're we're practicing civil disobedience, which is a form of direct action, and it involves you know breaking the law and yeah, utilizing your ability to stand in the way of something
0: what group are you a part of and what are sort of the decisions they've made as a group about how they operate?
1: So I'm part of Frontline Action on Coal and yeah we use non-violent civil disobedience and our idea of violence what we've kind of described it as is you know you can verbally be violent or if you destroy property you know that's violent so we don't practice any kind of violent behaviors whatsoever. I think like even the lock-ons that people use that is a form of making us really passive like you're you're locked onto this machine you you're not doing any harm to anyone else you kind of are
0: and you're not damaging the machine
1: no no not at all and you're like incapacitated so um you're not a threat or anything so it's just yeah very non-threatening and I mean we're challenging all these things because of like how dangerous they are and to challenge them with violence kind of in this situation it wouldn't be a good idea obviously for other activists in different countries like that is what they have to do to We're survive. pretty protected
0: in Australia yeah and the danger to you as a protester is much less than if you were somewhere else
1: yeah where yeah. the laws are different. Some people practice non-violence on principle and you know some people practice it because it's pragmatic and it is um, the right thing to do like we already cop all this stuff from the media, you know, if, if if they were then, you know, criticizing us for kind of breaking things or you know being violent, it would not look ba- not look good. And also, it just opens the door to yeah, people to do the same onto you and yeah,
0: yep, yeah. yeah, sure. It opens an ugly window for yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, You can't you can't condemn violence if you're also kind of practicing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ben, did you have a
0: story about someone who kind of ruined a blockade because they damaged?
2: Yeah, that was actually uh, Luke Bennett said he was in a blockade years ago for Northeast Forest Action. They were very effective at blockades because they could get hundreds of people to stay there for months. But there was one blockade where they had over a hundred people, and somebody, not one of them, decided to go and destroy a bulldozer, and and they had to get everybody out because they said. If you go and wreck their machines, they get very, very angry and they'll come down and beat people up. Mm. So that you basically um, don't want them to get too angry. Yeah.
1: And sometimes the machines are owned by, you know, a different person that's just contracted by this company. So you don't want to create all this animosity in the community when it's not, yeah, that's going to like hinder your cause Mm. as well.
0: And so, what was the relationship between the convoy with Bob Brown at the front and your group, Front Action on Coal? Was there a relationship between those two movements?
1: A little bit, but a lot of organisations are scared to work with Frontline Action on Coal because we we um, people do do civil disobedience and they break the law, um, and we you know help people to do that in the safest way possible so they don't want to get their charity status removed but the Bob Brown Foundation is not like that um but yeah I'm not sure um we we like came to Claremont with all the Wangan and Jangalingu and like helped cook all the meals and had a stall and had stalls like at all the things but yeah it was going to be a stop on the convoy to come to the camp and then that Decision was changed. I'm not sure of the details, why. But it was, like, very talked about and a lot of people did come after Claremont.
0: Bob Brown has the philosophy of non-violent action as well. Is that something that was spoken about on the convoy?
2: Yeah, I think they worked well a lot together, Frontline Action and Bob Brown. But then, yeah, Bob Brown Foundation is is a charity as well and they can't... They get their charity station... State is taken away if they advocate uh, criminality. Yeah. yeah. So they've they've got them over a barrel. All all of those groups. Mm. But I think you know they're doing protests in the Tarkine. Yeah. So that's probably just a different um of the organisation. Mm. You've got to have your sort of militia arm and then your sort of legal <laughs> arm and keep them separate. Yeah. Well, it's sort of the opposite of militia, isn't it? But it is um, your active
0: frontline kind of arm. So you actually go through some training, uh, real quick. you said mm-hmm. to learn how to do nonviolent yeah. direct action safely.
1: Yeah, so we make sure like anyone who's going to do an action with us, they have to have gone to a nonviolent direct action training, which is a whole day of learning about the history of direct action and then learning about the techniques, learning about how to cope in confronting situations. So you'll do like hassle lines or we'll do like a mock um, protest and, yeah, just to kind of give some guidelines of what to do and make it safer, yeah, and what not to do and then give them like a little bit of experience and then you also do a legal briefing so people... Understand what they're going into. Yeah, and because then you can like have actual consent because yeah. you know what you're consenting to. So, yeah, yeah, just to inform them properly. Yeah, that's kind of the same as what the nonviolent direct action training is too. So they, mm. you know, know what they're getting into and... Um,
0: can make that decision fully, yeah. consciously.
3: Yeah. yeah. And can I add in here, I went up to Camp Bindi and I must say that... So was that the end of the convoy, Camp Bindi? No, Indy? I wasn't there for the convoy. Oh, okay. It was later. The, end, the,
1: the convoy went back to... It went to Claremont. That was... In central Queensland, and then it went back to Canberra. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of people didn't go to Canberra. Some people stayed Yeah. and came to Binby.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I went up – it was the following year, actually, I think. Oh, no, no, it was the same year, but later. So I've been there a couple of times. And the training is extremely good, and people do have a sense of knowing where they stand. And it's a really welcoming environment and very inclusive. So it's quite a special place in terms of that. And I'd encourage anyone to go there and help out because it's actually where a lot of this um, action is coming from t- on the front line for Adani. So it's actually a, sort of a quite a rare place and it's really well organised and self organising system. So it's fantastic. All right. So tell me about Camp Bimbi. This- Who's,
0: is this your group set it up as a base camp? Is that
1: Yes, yeah. Um, some great environmentalists with some money um, bought a property and it's 100 acres. It was originally Adani was going to make their own railway line and then because of really great campaigning all over the world, a lot from the Wangan and Jangalingu and from Stop Adani and you know, Flack as well, they couldn't get the funding, so then they needed $2 billion. And then Horizon, which is the biggest company that hauls the majority of Australia's coal, it's 49% owned by the Queensland government, they said, oh, you can use our railway line. So it saved Adani $2 billion, but it also meant that they weren't going to build this railway line, which the camp is was near to that site, but now we are four hours away from the mine site. I mean, it... It would be hard to be anywhere because, like, if you were closer to the mine site, you'd be so far away from food and people, you know, come. We go and collect people from the airport. And so, yeah, it would make things more difficult, but then it does make things
2: quite
0: difficult. to get there. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but it's good to have a space. But it's different to, like, I mean, sometimes we call it the Adani blockade, but, you know, it's different to most of the blockades in Australia have been occupying the site that they're protecting so I think it is harder when you're unable to do that and it's harder anyway just being in the middle of nowhere.
0: (laughs) So it's interesting I think the whole Adani movement has been going for years and some very successful elements of it are how many businesses and companies that were going to be involved in the mine or supporting today Adani in one way or another as a contractor or have retreated from that and said they won't work with Adani because of how much public protest there is and how many people have told them that it's a bad idea to get involved. Mm. So do you have any comment on what's been happening there?
1: Yeah, just like contractor actions. So um, yeah, that's been really great because with the mine it's still kind of progressing, but then it's really kind of good to know that a lot of people are making decisions based on people taking action. Yeah, they're not working with the Danni. So. Yeah, I think that's a bunch of different grassroots groups that work together and go and 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 us too. Like we did a lot of actions in Townsville and in Mackay with different piping contractors and Siemens is the signalling yeah, company. For the which trains? You know, they they said they would. Like people were camped outside of Siemens offices just in Sydney because it was right after the fires. Like mm. families who just lost their homes. They still decided to do it, to go with Adani and then just recently they found out Adani lied in their talks and stuff but because it's, you know, legally they've signed the contract I don't know. But it's really positive and it is working, all these... So I think that's something,
0: if people are listening to this and they're not quite prepared to do some direct action training and camp out in Bimby, they can join the various petitions to companies that are supporting Adani and sign things and just show that people right across Australia and right across the world really care about this issue.
2: Yeah. There's um, lots of different groups all working together. As Friends of the Earth, Stop Adani, Climates for Change, and and they're all doing the sort of, um, you know, following the money. So they're they're actually going, contacting people all around the world and warning them not to work with Adani. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important part of the whole movement as well.
0: Jacinta, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit more about your experience up at Bimby and what you felt about all of that, just if you could expand on that a bit. Um,
3: there were several responses. I suppose my initial one was probably observational and picking up on the way of being in the place, which I found extremely respectful. It's a working camp. It's not a holiday camp. It's not It's not people just sitting around. People work. People are working all the time. And Yet you, the revolution is going to lots of meetings. <laughs> there's a lot of meetings which I was... Which I was quite fine with. I actually quite l- found it really interesting that process of how they ran, and they're always trying to streamline them to a certain extent, but things take time. I found it yeah extremely respectful. People did what they did, and there was a very much your own self working out what that was for yourself. It's a really good setup with food. It's really clean, you're camping, you've got your own space, You can, and the morning starts pretty much with an 8am meeting, mm. Mm. which sort of sets up the tone of the rest of the day or what needs to be said or what needs to be communicated and what needs to be done for that day. So everyone's really informed about what's going on.
1: And it's non-hierarchical and consensus-based decision-making processes, so... Uh, That's why there's a lot of meetings, I guess.
3: There's also, also, I think, um, still a lot of work to be done on how one practices consensus. And I think that's an uh, evolving and it's a practice rather than anything else. And the other thing that is happening up there, which is, I think, happening all throughout Australia, is the – it's – I think people take their own – practice of relationship with land into a personal place so I don't think we've actually explored very much bringing that into the fore of a cultural group practice and it's quite it pushes a lot of buttons to do that and also we in Australia have a lot to deal with indigenous culture here where colonization has devastated it so there's there's those sort of senses that so what can I think, that mean for people Well, I think we have to just practice and explore and do it, start doing some things and, yeah, support sovereignty actually in terms of the Indigenous culture is actually learn about the history of the area you're in and the broader aspects of where those people were. Like Victoria had the largest population of Indigenous people in Australia, in this area. So few left and there's a whole history there of how they got decimated. So we need to start learning that and trying to understand different ways of being but then also make mistakes in how we explore that relationship with land. So most people are up at Camp Bindi because they want to stop the climate crisis because they want people not to wreck the earth. So they're inherent in that is this love of earth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's something about that that...
1: We don't want to see everything die.
3: That's right. Yeah. And we don't want to see that. And so there's that aspect as well that is underneath all of this action, I feel, and something that we have to step out of our comfort zone. And,
0: and I think that's an important point about the motivations of the people who are protesting Adani and similar things right across australia and right across the world is that they're not just ratbags trying to like you know get attention or cause disruption because they love it they're people who passionately care about the environment that they're trying to protect and can see the devastation that will happen in the future if we don't stop these things from happening and it comes out of a place of a deep love for the land rather than any other reason
3: mm. <laughs> And that's true. And also these people get burnt out too as well. So there's that restorative practice that needs to – that can help with that. So you went up to Camp Bimby because that's where Rilke is based
0: as parents. So I think that's a nice turnaround because you – as parents took her along to various protests and you've had a lifetime of of being active in environmental things. Can you talk a little bit about how you raised your kids and, and um, maybe
3: Rilke can talk about what it was like being raised by Ben and Jacinta? Well, I'm extremely proud of what Rilke does. Right. Um, it's a really hard journey. It's thankless and sometimes people tell her she should get a job and in my understanding she has got a really important job that is not, necessarily acknowledged as an important job but um, trying to save our planetary practices at the moment in the crisis is extremely important. Upbringing, there's one thing about us reflecting on is that we've always sort of tried to live off as least amount of money as possible just because it makes your life easier; you don't have obligations then and I think in our consumerist society which I've always had problems with, Exponential growth on a finite planet just doesn't make sense. Um, that we need to have a lot less. We need to do a lot less and have a lot less. And particularly in Australia, we're really rich. I think I've probably instilled that in both our daughters as they grew up. And at different times, they've taken that on, at different times, not.
2: I just wanted to say that it's not like we've been lifelong activists that we went to a couple of blockades when the kids were little just to show them what they are like. But um, in between we just sort of, like everybody else, go along to the demos in the city and stuff. But it's only recently that we've become more activists.
0: And is that a stage of life thing? Or is it a
2: stage of the state of the world thing? <laughs> it's um, No, it's more the state of the world, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I-
3: I think I became involved in environmental stuff when I sort of in the late 90s I started doing a um, a master's in social ecology up at the University of Western Sydney and that that questioned a lot of how we are in the world and that's been there sort of all my adult life and I think that's all bound up together and then after that did a course in facilitation then after that started working with environmental movements around the transition movement so i'd been involved in that sort of change process from then so there's all these different ways of getting involved really mm.
0: and ben your art practice you're an artist a visual artist and that's always been themed to the environment and obviously built uh, in your children a sense of love and responsibility to the earth
2: yeah, I think if you're an artist, you're showing people that there's something far more important than all that book that goes on in the sort of commercial world, that there's something really true. And, you know, be- truth and beauty is what uh, we've got to try and maintain those values so that we've got an alternative to look up to. Mm. Yeah, so that's sort of got its a statement of its own.
3: I think one other thing we did when the kids were... As they were growing up, it's like we had a reputation which was like just what what it was, was we would go away every year for mm. quite a few months. We spent a lot of time camping all around Australia.
1: Lots of bushwalks. They would um, bribe us with barley sugars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously, just every holiday I'd go to a different national park and go camping and go walking. And yeah, I used to be like, oh, I want to go to like Disneyland or something. But then I got older and was like, oh my God, i so lucky to have had such an upbringing just exploring all these places in yeah in australia that's so beautiful and yeah that definitely gave me a strong connection to the land and then also you know growing up growing up in the bush with parents that have a strong passion for like social and environmental justice yeah and there is a photo of you as a young child and your sister. yeah i like i'd remembered going to this blockade in gulangook but i had not remembered what happened there and the other day I found a photo of my sister and I pretending to lock onto a bulldozer. I was like, oh my God, we've come full circle. That's great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, somehow that memory stuck in your craw and it seemed so familiar. You just walked in and put your arm in the lock on. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) It seemed the natural thing to do. But you were talking about whether it's a stage of life thing, that it's true that the activists, especially like Camp Bimby, tend to be pre-breeding or post-breeding. The people of breeding age tend to be too busy getting on with their their uh, busy raising, lives. Raising their children, yeah. yeah. Um, some, unfortunately, they tend to think what they're doing is more important than uh, the issues at, at hand, And until we convince everybody that this issue is more important than your trivial careers <laughs> and yeah. and pe- petty little lives. Then uh, we're, we're going to have trouble.
1: Yeah, everyone has something more important to do, and mm. no one has time. And it seems to be what is more important is ensuring that them on the or their immediate family does well in neoliberal capitalism. <laughs>
0: I know a lot of people who are profoundly anxious and even feel guilty for their children and for the future of their children, but it doesn't help them necessarily step out of the sort of like marching line towards you yeah, know, we... making enough money so the kids
3: can go to school and still go on that camp and still have that instrument. It doesn't change those priorities. We, we do need to step out of our comfort zone. There's no two ways about it. We'll be forced to, and the more we actually prepare for change and work out what is essential, and start breaking those false notions of what it is to be a interacting, successful Australian once we, we have to break that down and change is not comfortable sometimes.
1: If they feel anxious, you know, then they should explore all the knowledge about different ways of surviving in, all different cultures like this system is not how humans yeah yeah there's so many other ways to live that have been tried and tested and or all these great ideas so like at least try and know that there is a different way instead of just being like there this is the only way
3: yeah we're on a big big ship and it's really hard to turn it around like we've got this global economy that's being totally affected in every way at the moment and It is really hard to make changes when you're on one big ship together. And we talk about diversity. Now, we haven't got diversity in our human ways of being in the world, in our societies, in our our cultures probably we have in the past. So there's all of that that needs to shift.
1: We have some great activists, Ray and John, and they're maybe in their late 60s and they feel very guilty for being so complicit in the system and like, you know doing really well from it and now they just go and lock onto things and block roads and block stop bulldozers all the time it's great so they're kind of making up for it
2: (laughs) it's never too late
1: yeah it is never too late um bill ryan may he rest in peace he died just recently but he was he was arrested when i was arrested when we shut down the world's biggest coal port in newcastle for a day he was the oldest man in australian history to be arrested Ninety six. Ninety six. So you know, no excuses. People <laughs> sometimes like, oh yeah, you know, it's good you youngins are doing this. It's like, you're not too old to do it. Why is it our job? And we can't do it alone. We do. people thank you, and it's like, I don't know why you're thanking me. You think thanks for saving the world? It's like are you kidding. You think oh, I can save the world? We, there's a tiny amount of. It's like. We really can't do this,
3: on, you yeah. know. What we do need massive
1: yeah. change.
3: So, so when there's a call out, I reckon people should really take it on board and question, okay, what's essential and go up there and join. And
0: even if you just become the camp cook and you cook up a brilliant mm-hmm. meal for people. You know? So, so yeah,
1: much yeah, appreciated. Those things are like very good roles to yeah. fill at it,
3: In the camp, there's a lot of different roles. It's not like everyone has to go lock on. There's Mm. a huge amount of support that goes around someone locking on. There's a huge amount of planning and preparation. So, actually, you don't have to go up there thinking you're going to do direct action, be arrested and civil disobedience. That is actually not necessary at all. There's so many roles to fill that help with enabling that to happen, so there's no and, problem about that.
1: And you can do protests that are non arrestable situations as well, so yeah, whatever, obviously, whatever people are comfortable with doing. I
2: just wanted to explain that when you go to Camp Bimbi, apart from being a sort of utopian social world, you get all your training, And then it's up to you to decide what you're going to do. And you get in a group, make a group of people, and you go off and secretly decide your action. And you don't tell anybody what you're doing because that's your action and... Uh, but usually it just involves maybe only one or two people getting arrested and seven or eight people being support. So you, you don't have to start off by being arrested. you just one of the support people who are like someone watching just to make sure so that you know the legal situation. And there's all these r- different roles you can do before you actually go and get arrested.
1: But I will say that getting arrested for this type of action is one of the best experiences I've ever had like you know that was one of the best days of my life looking onto this stacker acclaimer because you you're like wow I'm just little me and I can stop this really evil thing and it's amazing You, you know you feel powerful and yeah it feels great to do that
0: yeah. yeah and how did it feel actually being arrested and how did the police treat you
1: well we had like good training with what to say the police which is pretty much nothing you just say no comment and give them your name uh, it's different in different states but yeah there was 26 of us and I was arrested with another woman the police were pretty fine they brought in the riot cops from Sydney who went to our diversion which was the knitting nanas they're into nanarchy Yeah, so there was 30 riot cops, went to the diversion and it's all these grandmas who were really lovely and they obviously felt like psychos. And then they came to us and it was crazy. They just stood around doing nothing. Even a horse tried to come into the coal like piles and was like, oh, I can't horse around here. (laughs) And they had one angle grinder to cut 26 people off. That's like 13 metal bars, one angle grinder, so it took ages, it took like nine hours, and all these riot cops standing around doing absolutely nothing, and then, so we just thought it was funny, it was great, yeah, like, we had a picnic, Rosie and I had a picnic, we all had packed lunches, and, you know, picked a shady spot, and it's surreal, you're just, like, there with all these piles of humongous piles of coals, like, the biggest bits of machinery, like, sizes of five houses, ten houses, just huge... Bits of machinery and yeah, like it's great. You're just stopping all this stuff. And yeah, and then we went to the cells and were like held in the watch house. They usually hold you for the longest time they can for like four to six hours. And I mean, people were having great time. They were like singing, making human pyramids. They got the water cups and made little hats and pretend cigarettes. (laughs) They were making whale noises. Yeah, it was quite fun. But I mean... It's not a fun situation for the majority of people who get arrested and they're not getting arrested, you know, on purpose. Like we are, we were all white people, you know, from rather like semi-privileged backgrounds. Yeah, it was was a good experience for us, but, you know, it's important to know that getting arrested is a very dangerous experience for Indigenous Australians and it's not a choice that other people can make because, yeah, it's not the same situation for them. Yeah,
0: totally. Absolutely, that's a really good point. And what does it mean? Do you get a permanent record or anything? What does it mean long term for you?
1: Well, surprisingly, I'm still on bail. I haven't been allowed in Newcastle for a year and a half, which is just ridiculous. Ideally, because I've never committed offence before, it's likely to get no conviction recorded, so you won't have a criminal history and Bill he we we got him to go through first just because I don't know like he was charged separately so we've just been holding our court case So Bill's both. our
0: 96 year old. Yeah. Man.
1: They couldn't get him on being armed with intent and then they charged him with trespass and the interference with mine and he was challenging that in the Supreme Court.
3: Can I tell that uh, lovely story about Bill? That it... Yeah. Oh uh, look there's a lovely story. He he has he had been charged before and at the previous time the magistrate said to him, look, maybe you should take up another hobby like fishing. So this time at the Newcastle, he was sitting somewhere and on the railway line line, and he had a fishing line. With a cardboard
1: fish. With
3: cardboard fish saying, gone fishing. Gone fishing. So he was still into protesting.
1: But yeah, it's highly likely we'll get no conviction recorded and just a fine. That's... Generally, the case for people who haven't committed yeah. an offence—they're very ageist in the courts too. So, if you are old, you're likely to, and white, you're likely to get a much lower, much more lenient sentence.
0: So, people wherever they are, how can they support people at Bimby or other actions? Ben mentioned a, a, a group a, a large number of organisations that were active in in the sort of boycott kind of area of protest but Mm. what else is there out there?
1: Well there's a new group that Galilee Rising which is kind of works with Stop Adani and um, with Frontline Action on Coal and they are trying to hold information sessions in different places throughout Australia to let people know what's going on with the mine and encourage them to take action and then they're going to be doing I think they already are doing non-violent direct action training so you can get trained before going to the camp. There's, like, a lot of things to do at the camp. So the less work, the better if you can get trained somewhere else. And Extinction Rebellion does a lot of trainings as well. So, yeah, you can follow those guys on Facebook and connect with them. Maybe you can hold a talk or maybe someone with experience can come and help run a non-violent direct action workshop yeah there's blockade galilee which works a lot with the different contractors and things so follow them and get in touch and yeah and then there's like in melbourne there's alliance between Waka, which is the whistleblowers and activists alliance and Lasnet, which is Latin American Solidarity Network, who they're doing a lot of stuff because BHP, you know, they don't have any coal mines here, but you know they had that dam that broke, you know, and now the bosses are facing, you know, murder prosecution because they did, they did, didn't
0: so, build good infrastructure. Yeah, in their and line. they just
1: ignored the warnings from the architects and things. So like because they didn't care about a whole village of people and their warning system for if it collapsed. Well, they didn't have one. This, They're not even like anything. This, Luckily, this woman woke up in the night and she rode around on her bicycle telling everyone and it saved a lot of people, but I think 17 people were killed. So this Australian company or people with their headquarters in Australia, and so those guys and then Frontline Action and Coal have an alliance and they have been ramping up the blockade of the International Mining Conference, which is in Melbourne every year, I think September around then. And yeah, where all the heads of all these evil companies come to Melbourne. And yeah, last year was pretty successful. There was a lot of resistance against that. And then just, I think supporting like indigenous sovereignty campaigns are really important and like the Jap trees and I know there's some forest blockades going to be happening out near Hurstbridge a bit further over. Yeah, I think like Bunnings and Officeworks are like logging those things. So while they're not coal, yeah, it's still great to Mm -hmm. even, you know, get more experience and...
0: Yeah, more local actions that people could get involved with to get experience. Yeah, and then it
1: like can normalise direct action more and more people will know about Mm -hmm. it, more people will do it and this movement will grow and maybe we can eventually have civil resilience Distance, like what's going on in Hong Kong and then people have to listen to and maybe they'll bloody do something.
2: <laughs> yeah, you can get started with the collaborators. There's collaborators who are collaborating with the coal miners all over the place and people are going and blockading their headquarters. GHD, they were collaborating with Adani, had been doing for 10 years and we successfully got them to pull out so you can just start. You cut your teeth on going out and standing in front of the offices of all the collaborators.
1: There's heaps of Stop Adani groups all over the country, and there's yeah, there's Frontline Action Coal in Melbourne, and yep. yeah, so just like connect with people, like-minded people and get some training, and yeah, stop a coal train. Yeah.
0: And it is, I think, important to re-emphasise that the Adani mine is a mega mine. It's insanely huge. And if, if it goes ahead, they're estimating that there'll be 200 million tonnes of CO2 released into the atmosphere uh, over 60 years, just in the actual operations of the mine. And burning that coal is at 130 billion tonnes of CO2 over that amount of time
1: yeah and that's so, just the Adani mine yeah. like where the you know if the Adani mine goes ahead all the other mines will go ahead as well <laughs> to great people like Gina Reinhart and Clive Palmer will earn billions of dollars but yeah they'll open it'll open the whole galley basin and even if it wasn't if climate change was not a thing it would even still be a really dangerous decision because of the great artesian base basin and the the water usage as well as the doom springs which is a sacred place for indigenous people and the scientific studies were based on the reliance that the water for the mine was coming from this aquifer instead of that aquifer but there there's no data they know that they don't know which aquifer the water will yeah. come from it's just very very risky
0: yeah there's been a lot of criticism of their environmental research and what they've presented, and yeah, that's a whole nother topic, I, I, mm. I, I think. Um, aside from the actual coal coming out of the ground and speeding up climate change, it's you know, we live in an era where it's absolutely clear that we need to reduce emissions, and we're still looking at going ahead with a mine that will give us 60 years worth of,
1: yeah yeah it's madness it's madness
0: <laughs> all right well thanks so much you guys oh thanks ellie thanks ellie That was Ben, Jacinta and their daughter, Rilka discussing the Adani coal mine and what it means to take direct action on an issue that large and with such huge and well-resourced opposition. To follow on from this show, next week I'll be talking with a lovely local by the name of Kerry. She spent her 20s in Western Australia helping with the protests to protect old growth forests out there. She describes the non-violent direct action ethos that she was trained in and how that has impacted her life. The concepts held in deep ecology and Buddhism also come into play. So tune in next week for that.
2: Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, true grassroots, great
3: grassroots.
0: Salt of the earth people. Grassroots grassroot change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at Saltgrass podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics know someone amazing we should talk to have a recycling tip a green product review or have a song recommendation again email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com this program was made possible with support from the community broadcasting foundation find out more at cbf.org.au this program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG and Maine FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Maine FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com.